Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Good evening. I'm Marissa Spadafore. I'm the AVP of Communications and External Relations here at De Anza College and a proud board member of Silicon Valley Reads. I wanted to invite you um, to enjoy tonight's program here at the college that is uh, Thompson Transfer and actually Silicon Valley's largest, with more than 20,000 students attending each year. We're also proud that more than 50,000 community members such as yourselves visit the campus each year to attend events at the planetarium, to take short courses, and for their children to come to um, the De Anza College Academy for Kids and Teens. We also have 20,000 people who visit the UFRAT each year, and we hope you had the opportunity to enjoy the exhibit tonight or will after the show. So thank you very much. I'd like to now introduce uh, Marianne Duan, County Superintendent for Santa Clara County Office of Schools. Good evening. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Reads 2019 Signature Event, presented by the Santa Clara County Office of Education, the Santa Clara County Library District, San Jose Public Library, De Anza College, the Commonwealth Club of Silicon Valley. I am Dr. Marianne Dewan, County Superintendent of Schools with the Santa Clara County Office of Education and one of the co-chairs of Silicon Valley Reads. The theme of Silicon Valley Reads in 2019 is Finding Identity in Family History, and it is my pleasure to introduce two of the authors of this year's Silicon Valley Reads featured books. Paula Williams-Madison, and Bill Griffith. Paula Madison is the author of Finding Samuel Lowe, the remarkable story of her search for more information about the Chinese grandfather she never met and how her journey led to connecting with 300 family members in China. Paula started her career as an award-winning journalist and went on to a stellar career as an executive at NBC Universal. Now retired, she serves on several nonprofit boards and travels frequently to China. Bill Griffith is a veteran financial journalist who has covered Wall Street on television since 1981, most of that time as an anchor on CNBC. He is currently co-anchor of Nightly Business News on PBS. A few years ago, a DNA test was completed as part of his genealogy hobby and he uncovered a shocking discovery. His beloved father was not the man who fathered him. His book, The Stranger in My Genes, is a memoir describing how this family secret shook him to his core. Moderating tonight's conversation is Saul Pizarro, columnist for the Mercury News. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming Paula Williams-Madison, Bill Griffith, and Saul Pizarro. Well, I'd like to start by thanking both of you for joining us here tonight. It's always fun to have authors uh, in-house who can talk about their books. 
And uh, I feel like with our topic tonight of family, we should have a bunch of plates of food and maybe a couple of bottles of wine well, in front I'd, of us. I was kind of hoping we would, but uh, <laughs> apparently that's not. I already ate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have some good restaurants here, so I hope you, you know, I don't know, maybe you had Chinese food. Or, uh, yeah. Not in the United States. Not in the United States. <laughs> we, we, uh, we have a Chinese, uh, we live in New Jersey. We have a Chinese restaurant near us that we love and so when our children were small, my wife and I have two children in their late 20s now, but when they were smaller and we came to San Francisco, we said, we're going to get some real Chinese food. We're going <laughs> to, holy cow, it was wholly di- different from what, uh, let me just say it was different from what we were used to <laughs> at our neighborhood Chinese restaurant in New Jersey. It wasn't the same. I can imagine. But it was authentic, all right. It was <laughs> for you. Yes, it was. As close as we can get, perhaps, here. Uh, so... You know, both of your books are obviously dealing very closely with family, and you're both journalists. Uh, These are personal stories for you, but at some point, I know as a journalist, a little bell goes off in your head that says, huh, this this is a story that perhaps I want to share with others. Can you give me sort of the origin story of when you decided that these were things you wanted to write about? Paula, why don't we start with you? Well, so I did not want to write about this. Um, And I I didn't want to write about it because I knew it was going to be a very emotional and personal story. So I really wanted to find my grandfather's family. That was it. Um, But in the course of researching, you know, you're taking notes and suddenly you find yourself with all this this information. And then I think um, 2011 was when I started doing the countdown to when I was going to retire early. And by May of 2012, when I really did retire, I decided that I should chronicle this. I should actually write this, but it was going to be personal. My family owns a television network called the Africa Channel, and my oldest brother, who is a bit of a bully, no, no, really, (laughs) um, He's the CEO. He said, you know, we're going we're gonna to shoot this. We're going to document it. So I have a documentary. And I said, no, I don't. I, no. But the documentary was produced and it was, it's out. And, um, and when I finished the documentary, I felt as though I had presented a pretty one-dimensional view of my grandfather and my mother. Mm-hmm. And both of them had very well-rounded and amazing lives. And I just... As much as I loved the documentary, I felt like I hadn't done them justice. So I went back to my notes. And during the course of about, I don't know, the next five or six flights to China, I wrote the book. It took me about five and a half months. Because as a journalist, you just, you know, just... Right. Just You're just going to keep going. Exactly. So I wrote the book, and HarperCollins um, gave me a contract. And that really is how that happened. But the book came about... Because I guess similar to when I first started in journalism, I was a print reporter Mm -hmm. and I thought I wasn't going to do TV because that's all hair and makeup and it's not as deep. Yeah, that's what I think right now. No, but you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, I I really wanted to not have cameras following me around and I didn't want to have hair and makeup. And if you've ever seen the documentary, you'll see sometimes my hair is sideways and it's <laughs> crazy. And sometimes I have on makeup and sometimes I don't because I wasn't concerned about that. I was concerned and consumed with finding my family. And I am uh, living proof that television news is not just about hair. <laughs> um, 
But uh, when I, I tend to journal when important things happen in my life, when our children were born, when my father passed away, and when this DNA test came back, it was my way of just getting uh, all this angst that was in me out. And, and when people come to me, I've had so many people come to me with similar stories, and how do I deal with it, they ask. And the first thing I say is, keep a journal. Just write it down. Don't worry about spelling and punctuation. Just get it out there. Get the emotions out. And that's what I did. You know, I would just write whatever I was feeling or experiencing at that time. And I don't know when it occurred to me that this might be a book, but I am on the board of the New England Historic Genealogical Society in Boston. And my brother said after a time, he said, you know, uh, now that this is out, you know, this DNA test is, is, is completed, you know, you better let these people know that you're not who you said you are because they might <laughs> kick you out of this thing. So I did tell the CEO of the, of the society and immediately he said, you should write a book. You need to write about this. This is your story to tell. And slowly this journal that I was keeping became this book. And it was incredibly cathartic for me to, to be able to do this. So, um, and, and it's been um, a great experience. I don't know what I was expecting when the book went out. Mm. But to get the feedback now from people who have had the same experience, and, they, and I, what I love hearing is it helped. You're speaking words that I thought but couldn't articulate. And I, that, that's been a big help for me. We were at a speaking engagement with you earlier today, I was, and you talked about just the genealogy wave that's happening right now. It feels like both of you kind of like hit this at the right time without realizing it. Uh, I think the statistic that you said was was that... As far as DNA testing goes, MIT just this week came out uh, and said that by their estimate, 26 million Americans have now taken a DNA test. Wow. Okay. Um, and, and, and in 2018 alone, the number of people who could, who took the test, a DNA test equaled the number of people who had taken it the 17 years before that combined. So clearly we're on this upswing where it's growing exponentially for people to gain interest. And I will say, I mean, my book is two and a half years old. It's not young by, by publishing standards, but the interest has continued to grow because of this interest in DNA testing, which uh, you know, is, I think it's a good thing. And this will be great for our audio audience, but how many people in the audience have taken a DNA test? <laughs> okay, see? Now, uh, it was a good majority for those of you listening. And how many of you, and I'm not going to pry, how many of you got uh, a, a result that you didn't expect? Okay, yep. See, the, the, the founder of a company called Family Tree DNA, which was the first company to, to do DNA testing for genetic uh, 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 genealogy, I asked him one time, you know, how many of us are like me? Come on, how, how many get this, this kind of a result? And he said, you'll never know because there are plenty of people who will never let people know. They'll keep it private. I mean, not everybody's dumb enough to write a book about it. <laughs> um, but his guesstimate was maybe 10%. So if you consider 26 million people have taken a DNA test at this point, just by that math, 2.6 million of us are out there like this. Even if he's inflated it too much, let's say 5%, 1.3 million, that's still a big number there. 
Now, but Paula, for you, your experience had very little to do with DNA testing. It was all about personal connections, going to the Hakka conference that you went to. What was that like to sort of do that shoe leather type of investigation? Sure. So in my earlier life, I had been an investigative reporter. Um, And I, in college, I'd majored in um, history and um, today it's called Africana Studies. It was Black Studies, and I had a minor in education. I didn't realize um, that even then going to journalism school, graduate school for journalism, I didn't realize that I was actually just acquiring the skills that was mm-hmm. going that were going to help me research my own family. I'd always felt disconnected, not a part of anything. My mother wasn't a part of that community. Um, we were accepted in Harlem until our mother came outside. And then it would, it with was With a like, meat cleaver. I well, think. well, <laughs> she didn't always come out with a meat cleaver. <laughs> Sometimes she came out to just call me into dinner. Um, but it, it was, it was, so I look like this. Okay. And the answer, the radio audience is going to miss it, but the answer is like, oh my God, I don't think she really looks Chinese. Okay. Well, maybe not. See, Mm -hmm. there you go. It's for you. (laughs) I I took off my glasses. So um, what would happen for me would be then my mother looked Chinese. She absolutely looked Chinese. She didn't look like she was mixed with black. She looked Chinese. And so then there were the three of us. And the answer was buried somewhere in the world. I didn't know how to find it, but I promised myself when I was six years old, that my mother was so unhappy. She must be unhappy because she says family is everything. We don't have any family. I know I'll find her family for her and then I'll make her happy. That was a childish commitment that stayed with me my entire life. And that's what I did. So there wasn't the ability to do a DNA search. It couldn't. But my mother had told us uh, a story or two about her father and uh, and I used that when I went to the Toronto Hakka conference in 2012. And um, I, the audience was about this size. And um, the moderator, the founder of the conference, who had the same surname as my mother and grandfather, um, in sort of an English dialect, in an American dialect, it's, it's pronounced lo. But in Chinese, in whichever dialect, it's pronounced lo, right? Mm-hmm. But the British ship's clerk who was registering my grandfather on the ship would have heard him say his name is Luo Ting Chao and the person heard Lo. And I don't know what the rest of it is, but I'll just make it Samuel. And that's how. (laughs) Um, But ultimately, the storytelling and the ability to sort of, you know, timestamp when these things happened and then the, the, the... existence of the internet and a big help to me was the mormon run genealogical site somebody knows it familysearch.org it's a it's it's an amazing it's an amazing resource and uh i i um did a lot of research there i ended up at that conference standing up in front of a group of people about this size uh, and for the very first time in my life, I uttered the words, so I'm part Chinese and nobody laughed. That was the first time in my entire life. Mm-hmm. I was 58 years old. 
No one left. Wow. And I was like, no, I'm sorry. I was almost 60. I was like, wow. So I went on to explain my grandfather, Jamaica, da, 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 da. And at the conclusion of that, one of the people in the audience said, we're going to help you locate your grandfather's people. And that was it. Um, two weeks later, sent an email. An email was sent on my behalf by the gentleman who was the co-chair of the conference, uh, whose name was Keith Lowe. And when I'd gone to him and asked him, I said, you have the same surname as my mother and grandfather? Have you? No, no, I never heard of them. Well, you know, no, no, I never heard of them. And so um, Jeanette Kong, who I eventually hired to produce this documentary, she lived a 10-minute walk from him in Toronto, and she said, we have to help Paula. We have to help her. And he was like, okay, okay. So he sent an email to his nephew in Hong Kong. He copied me on the email. A, uh, a uh, Jamaican-American woman says something, 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 and da 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 And the next day the email came back, and it said, my uncle says Samuel Lowe is his father. So from the time I went to that conference, which was June 30th, I was sitting in Shenzhen, China, meeting my 88-year-old uncle Jawu and my 94-year-old aunt Adassa, and it was probably six months, six weeks later. The internet is how that happened. And both of you got these emails that kind of changed your life. I mean, yours was, was you know, he, he was my father, and yours was... He was not my father. <laughs> it's okay. Yeah. It's, okay. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's a heck of a way to find out, is all I can say. I, I, what's wrong with people? They can't pick up a phone, you know? <laughs> but anyway. But, but, so you, but your, uh, your experience... You'd already been into genealogy beforehand. My wife is out there somewhere. She and I have been doing genealogy since 2003. So uh, at that point, it was almost a decade. And we had traveled through parts of Europe and throughout the United States to different parts of the, 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 uh, where our ancestors lived. And we had done quite a bit of research. And we had taken our family histories back to the 1600s. Um, uh, so I, I knew a lot uh, about my family, uh, and then I took a DNA test, and I learned a lot more uh, about my family. Uh, uh, the, I have a first cousin. He and I, our, our fathers were brothers, and he was also into genealogy, and he did some research with me, and we had traveled to different places together on our ancestor hunts, uh, to find uh, where our ancestors lived. Uh, but he veered into uh, DNA testing. He was more scientifically minded than I am. I'm more the typical journalist where I like to roll up my sleeves and, and dig in the records, and I go to the, the old churches and the old courthouses and the cemeteries, and I, I do the, you know, the shoe leather kind of uh, research. But he loved this DNA testing thing. So he was bugging me to take a DNA test to help him find cousins that we didn't know about. So he finally convinced me. And I, you know, and I didn't talk about this before, but you, your trip to China was around August of 12, 2012. That's when my trip was. So we were in Kansas when he wow. convinced me to take this DNA test, which is when I took it in August of 2012. A month later, uh, he lets me know that they got a weird result and he asked to have it retested, the sample, and a month after that, in October of 2012, um, he sent, I was sitting in the newsroom at CNBC one afternoon having lunch uh, at my desk, and I get an email, and he said, you know, take a deep breath was the, the heading. Um, 
and it said, uh, you know, the results were not what we expected, and the bottom line was your father was not your father. And that's how I found out. And there uh, you went from there. And then chaos ensued, mm. and I started journaling right away. Now, you both, I think, explain in your books, you have some moments that are probably pretty scary where you're trying to find out the truth and whether you'll be accepted. Yeah. Uh, yes. In your case, Paul, you, you travel to China, and you're thinking, as you explained, that, that will these people accept me as a part of their family? What was that like for you emotionally? Did you have doubts? No. It was my husband who, um, <laughs> so, so now, now let's talk specifically about race. Okay. okay? So my husband is African-American and is from New, New Orleans, and he is the grandson of a Creole man. And the Creole mixture is such that they frequently can pass for white. So his grandfather could have passed for white, and yet he married a woman who was very obviously African-American. She was dark-skinned, and she was, she was quite large. His family immediately disowned him. Right. So that's that's my husband's experience with showing up in a family. So as I was like really close and on this journey and I'm like, you know, it's the paper trail and I'm the dog with a bone and I'm not giving up. And my husband, who I love dearly and who and who loves me dearly back. And he said, baby what are you hoping for when you meet these Chinese people in your family? And I, what do you mean? He said, well, what are you expecting? I had no idea what he was getting at. And I said, I, I, don't, I don't understand. He said, Paula, do you know you're black? <laughs> and I, who am a bit assertive and aggressive, I know I'm black. What's your point? What are you saying? And he said, no, no, baby, I'm just trying to. And then he didn't finish. He didn't, he, he didn't finish the thought, but I got there. And I said, oh, I said, you think they might not accept me. Now, remember what his experience was right. from his grandfather. And, and I said, no, no, they're going to want me just as much as I want them. And, my, and the look on my husband's face was, you poor imbecile. <laughs> like, I love you so much, but I didn't know you were really this stupid. And, that, and it was like a loving kind of patronizing, it's okay, baby. It was that. And of course, now I'm like... Right. He turned out to be wrong. <laughs> well, he turned out to be so wrong, and he was so happy that he was that wrong. Because when I did reach out, in all truth, in all honesty, um, that email exchange was followed by, my uncle says he knows all of his father's children, and he's never heard of Nell Vera Lowe. And then I wrote back, well, my mom was born November 15, 1918, and she said when she was 15, almost 16, she left her grandmother's house and went to go find her father. She encountered his two brothers, her uncles, in a shop that he owned, and they told her, unfortunately, he had gone back to China a few months before and was never going to return. So what was fascinating to me was in this exchange, now it's a real-time exchange, my uncle Jiao Wu, 
88 years old, he immediately writes back. Has the, you know, he's, he only speaks Hakka and, and Cantonese, but he has someone write, um, um, this is my niece, I want to meet her. And I was like, wow, like, where did, like, okay. So when I met him and I was, my, my chest was tight, I could barely speak. And what I learned the following day was, I was like, so, so how did Uncle Jawu just like that? And they, so I learned that my Uncle Jawu, when I gave the date of my mother's birth and I timed it so that she was 15, almost 16, my uncle knew that his father left China permanently July 3rd, 1933. Right. He did the math. Mm-hmm. And then I learned that my uncle, I didn't know he was an accountant and he was one of three men in China who wrote China's version of the gap, the generally accept, accepted accounting principles. And I was like, yes. <laughs> My that people. Finally, that <laughs> finally worked for me. So uh, I do have to do another check here. Uh, is, has anyone, how many of you have not read Bill's book? Have not read it? A lot have of Not him. read it? Okay. There's going to be some spoilers here, but, <laughs> you know, it's still a great read, even if you know the twist. And, and that is, you have to have a very hard conversation uh, because you discovered... Uh, that in fact your DNA test that you took twice was correct, yeah, and your father wasn't your father, right. and that so led who, to an awkward who do moment. Who I go to for answers? It had to be my mother. My father. The, the, yesterday I had a great conversation. Just so we're defining terms here uh, at, at Santa Clara University, uh, with uh, where we discussed the ethics of DNA testing, and uh, a professor of religious studies uh, delineated between biological family and biographical family. I love that. I'm stealing that. I'm going to use that from now on. So my biographical family, the Griffith family, um, what was your question again? I forget. <laughs> well, you're, you're the, hard, the hard conversation yeah. you had with your mom. So uh, once I learned that the, the DNA test was what it was, it's for real, the only person I was going to get answers from was my mother. She was 94 years old oh. at the time. Um, and her birthday was coming up, her 95th birthday. Now, we live on the East Coast. She lived in California. So we were coming out for her 95th birthday, and I was going to be asking some pretty awkward questions on mom's 95th birthday, but that was the only way I was going to get answers, um, uh, and it was by far the most awkward conversation I've ever had in my life. Uh, Part of it because it was with my mother. Having to ask her, you know, you haven't lived until you've heard your 95-year-old mother confess to a fling. (laughs) That's my word. Her word was mistake. And that's me. Hmm. Um, And that's how I took it, too. Uh, I went through the various stages of grief that have been identified. Uh, from denial, there's no way that this was was true. But then I went through depression, very strong anger. But I'm at I'm at acceptance now. But I was still in the throes. I was in the fetal position when I was having these conversations with my mother. And when I heard mistake, I took it very personally. I took it badly, and I journaled like mad. Uh, and it you know it was a a very difficult time for me at that at that at that moment, but um, yeah, um, people who have come to me uh, with a similar story 
they're looking for either comfort or guidance. And the guidance, I say, is to journal. But, you know, you've got to at some point get to a point where you can ask the important questions of the person who has those answers, no matter how awkward that may be. Uh, it's important. I, you know, being a journalist, mm-hmm. I'm all about the truth. And it's the truth and that you're after. And um, I, we got as much as we could from my mother. She was unwilling to go too far, which I understood. She's of a certain generation. Um, but uh, we, we, got, uh, we got what we needed. And it went from there. Do you feel like more of a complete person, not to get a little Jerry Maguire about it, but now that you, you that, have that's that the thing. truth? That's uh, the thing. You know, and I'm going to generalize here. A person who is adopted, I can imagine, feels like there's, some, there's been something missing in their life, right? They don't know about their biological family. And those who do choose to go back and, and, and try and find their biological family or learn about them, you know, they're trying to fill a need, fill a void that's been in their life. I didn't have a void. I had a family, you know. I, this came out of nowhere. I was 56 years old when, when I got this DNA test. I already had a family that I was very happy with, so I wasn't missing, uh, missing anything. Um, but by the same token, I, I was very curious to learn as much as I could about this man who was my biological father. Uh, he has passed also. He, he died in 1999, so I never got to meet him. But um, I was very curious to know as much as I could. But I never, it, I wasn't doing it because I felt incomplete. Um, that wasn't the issue. It was just this innate curiosity. I wanted to know what, what this was all about, right? I mean. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at commonwealthclub.org. Now, back to our program. But you felt incomplete. Completely. Yeah. It's It's so interesting because you grew up in a family. Yes. And... I grew up feeling that I was the child of a, of a woman who had been abandoned and she had the same traits that you sometimes would find the, the, the depression and the abandonment and those feelings of an adopted child, mm-hmm. not one who is happily adopted, right. but one who, why doesn't anybody want me? A yep. child feeling abandoned. And so for my mother... What I, you know, what I learned, which was um, about two years ago, I had a conversation with my daughter, who's a forensic psychiatrist. And I was like, where is that coming from? Like, this is all walking around in the head kind of stuff. Why are you being in people's brains? Just stay outside. <laughs> so she said, no, Mom, I'm really good with crazy people. <laughs> so, and she said, thank you. So she said to me one day, she said, well, Ma, you know that Grandma was bipolar, right? And I said, what? And it was another one of those moments where the wind gets knocked out of you. You can't breathe. You've, you know, like if you've ever had surgery and they put the ether and you feel like you're just kind of floating. It was like, what did you say? Uh. 
And she mm. said, Ma, now that I'm a professional and I understand, she said, Grandma was bipolar. Mm. Now, I'd always known my mother was different in many ways, not just in her physical appearance, but my mother was the one who, if you did not do what she wanted you to do, she could go into a frenzy. And for me as a child, I just look at her like, I should go sit down because Ma's really upset. So I learned how to, it came in very helpful in running newsrooms. <laughs> I, I, learned, I learned how to sort of manage when people were very emotional. But when my daughter gave this behavior that my mother had a word, a phrase, it's a diagnosed condition. And then I was like, oh, so my mother was mentally ill. Now, that for me was really mm-hmm. like no shame, no anything, but I felt now like, wow, I could have gone into a book and read about what was happening and it wasn't just me. So for me and growing up, in all honesty, for as much as, you know, if you read the book and you know how much my mother meant to me and how she was everything, she also made me afraid of people's mothers. Mm. Because I grew up believing that the moment everybody else leaves the room and I'm with your mother, she's going to say something or do something and I'm going to have to sit quietly because she's freaked out. Because that's what mothers do. Because that's what mothers do. And it, and it, was, it, was, it was something that for me, um, my daughter says, I suffer from anxiety and I tell her she's stupid. Do I appear That's what mothers do. I yeah. mean, yeah. <laughs> but 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 the, to 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 have her granddaughter, who she loved and adored, and everybody in my family knows, you know, Imani was grandma's favorite grandchild. It's like hands down, Imani was the favorite. But for Imani to have grown up with her grandmother and now in her f- late thirties to say to me, "Well, grandma was bipolar." Now the genealogy made me then wonder, whoa, so this kind of runs in families. Mm-hmm. So it is actually in my family in China. Some of, uh, so, some of the children, two of the children of my first cousins are bipolar. Mm-hmm. Um, someone in my family, my more immediate family here in the U.S. is bipolar. And I just thought that, you know, th- these are quirky things, but they're not just quirky things. And they can be treated. Um but not everybody chooses to get the treatment. But what if you're bipolar and you don't know you're bipolar? You know, then is it like growing up in my neighborhood in Harlem? I grew up on welfare. Is it, is it that, is that the guy who's on the corner who's the wino? Is that, is that the woman who's the heroin addict who sometimes doesn't come home to her children and my mother who so embraces abandoned children that anytime anybody's mother didn't come home, you know where to find that kid? In my house. My mother took in every kid everywhere all the time. And it was like, we were like, yay, Ma, sure. Let's, you know, not a problem. She, she, the phrase was, I'm going to drop you in the tub. You take a bath and then I'll give you some clothes to put on. And then when your mother shows up, you can go home. But wow. we were the safe haven for kids. And yet my mother was the one who had every kid in the neighborhood in our house so she could watch them to see if they were bad kids. And if they were bad kids, you can't play with them. 
So, 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 so the manifestation of my mother's bipolarism is such that I came to this country to become wealthy. If I'm not going to be wealthy, then my children are going to be wealthy. And you, my daughter, if you're not going to be wealthy, I'm going to pull your tongue out of your head. I will never let you live. And I grew up with that. So it's, I mean, it's, but I knew that it wasn't just go to NBC. My mother was like, journalist, like, what's that? You're not a doctor and you're not a business person. Nothing. So one day, my, bi- my bi-weekly check, <laughs> I handed it to her. I was like, Mom. peacock on it. Right, exactly. Mom. <laughs> And she looked and she said, what is this? I said, well, that's how much you get paid every two weeks, not including bonuses. And she, she looked at it. They pay you for doing that? What do you do? <laughs> and I said, I make money. Okay. Good enough for her. The, you know, a, great, a great part in your book, Paula, is you go through in the, in the mid-60s, uh, well, the late 60s, you know, a cultural awakening as an African-American. And then, you know, 45 years later, you go through another cultural awakening and you can see it in the last chapters of your book as you're writing about everything that happened to your grandfather and his family, your family, during the Chinese revolutions, during the Sino-Japanese War. Yeah, fascinating. And what was that like to sort of re-experience a cultural awakening that late in life? It was a, there was a lot of crying. I was, I was, I was like out-of-body experience like my grandfather was going through these things of discrimination my grandfather who had been a capitalist and who was an overseas Chinese living in Jamaica and at that point the Chinese government would have branded him you know like like the bottom of your shoe and what I learned was you know my mother had told us when we were children that her father went back to China and died so we never looked for him because we thought he had died I had this burning just, and it, you know, so, you know, I try to be pragmatic, but I'm not really. And I used to hear my grandfather when I'd ask in my head, why did you leave my mother behind? Why did you, and he, how, how come I don't know where you are? And I would hear him say, just look for me, you'll find me. So I blindly was doing this. And as I got more and more and more information, I, I, my, my, um, one of my first cousins, um, his name is, his name is in Mandarin is Luo Minjun, and in Hakka it's Man Kwan Lo. Um, I was asking him, so you grew up with my grandfather and our grandfather, he said yes until he was nine. Uh, again, through translators, people in my family in China, they, English is pretty common, but a lot, my generation doesn't really speak English. It's the next generation under. So they're translating. And I said, well, he started telling me stories about our grandfather. And I said, you should write a book. You should write a book. <laughs> so he wrote a book. I, however, don't read any dialect. I don't speak any dialect of Chinese. But his daughter, who was educated in Melbourne, um, she translated into English. And it's very stiff Chinese English. So I'm colloquializing it into, you know, American English now. And I'm doing it in, in time for I have a screenplay and we've been working with, and speaking to another a number of production companies. And so we're hoping that um, Finding Samuel Lowe, the book, will make it to the big screen, to Hollywood. I want to see the Chinese man making love to the black woman. <laughs> You're already casting it in your mind, well, don't you? 
The reason why I need to see this is because one time I was speaking, I won't say what company, they had a 500 women, you know, professional women, something, something, something. And I was a speaker <laughs> and I told my story and the woman raised her hand. And she said, I don't understand. She said, are you saying your grandfather was from Africa and he moved to China? <laughs> and I was like, wow. So some of the people in the audience groaned. They were like, pay attention. And I said, well, no. <laughs> My grandfather really was Han Chinese and he left China in 1905 at the age of 15. He got to Jamaica where the women are very beautiful. <laughs> and, and, and they were irresistible. And he had not one, but two. Maybe there were more. But two of them had children. who, And I said, so uh, my grandfather made love to a black woman. And that's why I'm here in all my beauty. <laughs> so I say all that <laughs> regarding the screenplay and the scene that I have to see because there really are people who I've encountered who just don't understand yeah. how I'm pop. How are you here? How are you possible? It's like I'm actually going to put a picture up. Yeah, there because for you. sex is sex. Love is love. Love is love. There you go. So let's move to some questions from the audience. Uh, for Bill, uh, did your mother ever tell you uh, more about your father and their relationship besides what you had in the book? Did you get any more out of her? Oh, yeah. Uh, not a whole lot, but, you know, it's, it's so funny. Um, my mother had such a great memory. She could tell you the, the, the address of every home that she and my father lived in over you know, a, a 50, 60-year period. She knew the address down to the, to, the, to the number. But when I asked her more information about my biological father, she, uh, where was he born? I don't know. Um, uh, did he have kids? Uh, I, I don't remember, you know, I mean, she was very obstructionist in that regard. However, <laughs> for whatever reason, my mother told me, um, where they did it. And, and you were conceived in a, I was conceived at a Catholic church. <laughs> um, my, yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> oh, my. My biological father was a builder. Uh, he owned a construction company. He and his brother did. And my mother was the office manager. And they were working on this. This uh, uh, It's a landmark church in, in Southern California. Clearly for you. For me as well. <laughs> um, and he asked her to bring some paperwork. Wink, wink. Uh, to the construction site one day, and Mom says that's where it happened. Now, um, um, I, I, and it was all I could do to keep a straight face when, when she told me this, because I'm trying to get as much information from her as, this was not exactly what I was looking for, but, you know, <laughs> hey, I'll take whatever you can offer me, Mom. Uh, the church, by the way, is St. Catherine of Siena in Reseda, California, and mm. if anybody has seen the movie Boogie Nights... Uh, yeah. That was the church in Boogie Nights. So yes, it, it's uh, it all fits together. It's a landmark, anyway. Yeah, exactly. Uh, but yes, uh, but beyond that, uh, my mother was not willing to go too, too much further in in telling me about my biological father. It, it fell to my wife, who really kept me sane, 
uh, as I was still in the fetal position from all of this, she plowed ahead and did a lot of the genealogical research to find out more about who my father was and the family and so forth. So it didn't come from my, my, uh, my mother. And we're going to get to some of that in a moment. Yes. But okay. uh, one thing that I wasn't entirely sure from your book, did your mom know that your biographical father wasn't your biological father? Here's her story. She, <laughs> she claims that she wasn't exactly sure uh, that, he was, that my biographical father wasn't my father until I brought this DNA evidence to her. Her line was, now my, my biographical father was ambidextrous, but he wrote with his left hand. I write with my, I'm left-handed. I wrote, and that for her was all she needed to see. Uh, and no, to tell her that my biographical father was my father. That's what she says. I'm not so sure, to, to be honest with you. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I don't know. And there's, there's some clues. I mean, there's the card. Well, you want to give the whole thing away there. Well, I'm yeah. just saying. I, there, I have, there's, there's some clues that she I might have I have reason to believe that my biological father knew about me. And in fact, uh, uh, being a successful businessman, uh, he, was reti- he retired in 1980. I began my career in television in 1981. He was the classic definition of a CNBC viewer. Mm. And I wonder if he watched me through the years. And I wonder if he put two and two together when he watched um, but I'll never know. Wow. Now, a uh, question for you, Paula. Did you and your family take a DNA test in China? Yes. Uh-huh. So you, you know some things about... No. <laughs> so when my Uncle Jawu was in the hospital, he had a uh, lung condition, pulmonary and uh, so, you know, there's me. It's like, oh, how efficient. Well, Uncle Jawu's in the hospital. Let's do a DNA test. <laughs> so we did. Um, I can't tell you the ways, the, 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 the myriad ways I think of how to save money or how to get a deal. I'm, I'm like, you know, I'm going to deal. So I was always in the hospital. They're pulling blood. Let's have that blood test of DNA-wise. So they did my uncle's DNA, and then my brother, my oldest brother, was um, in China. And of course, as you all know, who've done the testing, it's best to use males if you want to, because you get um, the Y chromosome doesn't change exactly. Right. So my brother, we had his DNA tested in China, and I, I have the, you know, I have the information because someday I'm going to be able to use this, but today's not the day. What they said was that, well. They said was that they'd need to t- take DNA from another 30 to 40 people in our family in order to rebuild my grandfather's DNA. Mm. So by hmm. pulling all this, they could actually, that's what they claimed. And I was like, so how much is it? And it's going to be about, you know, $200 per person. I was like, you yeah, know, that's not no. going to happen. I'm not paying for that. We'll just fly to China instead and hang well, out. Well, <laughs> no, we, we had already done that. So this was after the fact. However... So in the documentary, there's a scene where 
I talk about how, and I think I talk about it in the book. The my my, I had never seen pictures of my grandfather. I didn't know what he looked like. Yeah. So I asked Michael Jawu before I met him, "Can you please bring pictures of my grandfather, and I'll bring pictures of my mom." Bring the pictures. We're in the hotel lobby in Shenzhen. I don't know how and why I didn't cry because I was so emotional, but I wasn't. You know, it was like I'm here talking, but in my head I'm freaking out. So. When he handed me my grandfather's picture and I handed him my mother's picture, we were just sitting there staring. And then he took my mother's picture from me, took my grandfather's picture and he put them together and he said, she looks like him. Now, the odd thing is that of the eight children my grandfather had, none of them looks more like him than my mother. <laughs> I mean, that, so I was like. <laughs> so many of these stories come down to like this this luck, this fate and destiny. Absolutely. Now, you know, you mentioned your brothers. Uh, what is their reaction to all this? Has there been any downside? On, no, no, no downside. Um, so I pride myself in fulfilling what my mother said, which is that she's the youngest, she's the girl, but she rules them. I rule them. Okay. So their reaction is I tell them where to show up. So like the, for the Toronto Haka conference, I was like, okay, I found out about this conference. We're going. And they're like, okay. <laughs> and then I make all the reservations. The car's going to pick you up. What? Be at the airport. Okay. So we show up and they show up. And so my brothers will tell you that when my sister has her mindset on something, just stand back, <laughs> just stand. Back. So they just, and I just tell them, okay, come here. And they go, Okay. And, you know, they're six four and they're like manly men, but you know, I'm in charge. So particularly in the pursuit of our DNA, I mean of our um ancestry, when we were in Toronto at that conference, I was like, I don't know, talking to people and I walk over to my older brother Howard and he's standing there there with Jeanette Kong, who eventually mm-hmm. who I'd hired eventually to shoot this documentary. And they're saying something in unison and it goes something like at ye Sam and I was like you just met her. And what is that? And why are you saying the same thing? What is that? And Howard said, I don't know. I don't, she started saying it and I know it. And I said to her, what was that? She said, I was counting one to 10 in Hakka. She said, you're absolutely Hakka. She said, and I said, what? Howard, how do you know? He said, Ma taught me that. So then my oldest brother walks over, Elric. And I said, do you know that he's standing here counting in like this Chinese dialect, Hakka? And I said, he counted one to 10 with Jeanette. He said, oh, I can count to 20. <laughs> He, he starts counting, and, and so I'm mad. Because they had this. And I said, why didn't you tell me? Oh, I thought you knew. I didn't know. I didn't know you didn't know. I was like, you're so stupid. I've been searching. I'm a historian and a journalist. I've been trying to find all these clues and walking around right here. Like, you're counting this <laughs> stuff. And I was like, so, so my brothers give me what I want. They show up where I tell them. Um, and it's not a bad thing because right now, I mean, so we're, consummate entrepreneurs so my brother started a, he's he he's in hong kong he went to hong kong and then into Shenzhen, which is 30 miles from hong kong on, on across the border mainland china and he started uh he's having manufactured um smartphones customized for sale in accra ghana in ghana mm. so we somehow always figure out how to tie all of our everything's together like there's a very nice winery in Napa called Brown Family Estate. Brown Family, you know that wine? So they're Jamaican. And I found them because my husband and I were 
celebrating our 25th wedding. We were up there drinking wine. And somebody said, oh, you know, there's a black-owned winery. So we went. And, then are you Jamaican? Jamaican, yeah. And then it turns. So when so my brother Howard eventually got engaged to one of them. But, oh. But, but we distribute work. their wine in China. We started a, because we. You were. You were. You are such an entrepreneur. I can't help it. I am the granddaughter of a Chinese shop. How many people here are Chinese? Raise your hand. Right. Hey, there you are. You know, we're always <laughs> thinking about how to do a deal. And, I love that. And maximizing. And, you know, you're going to give me the best price because I'm Chinese, too. <laughs> so so let's, uh, let's bring our audience up to date uh, with what's been going on since the publications of your books. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bill, your book ends uh, that you know a great deal about your biological family, but you've not contacted them. Correct. Uh, Has that changed? Uh, It has. Um, uh, It it took me a while to decide that I wanted to reach out to my biological family. Again, I kept telling myself it's because I already had a family and, and so forth. But I felt the tug, and, it, and as the time went on, um, I, I knew that I would have to uh, reach out to my biological family. So I did. My wife and I, we, my daughter likes to say that I stalk people on Facebook, but I prefer to say I monitor them. <laughs> so we monitored uh, a particular uh, woman who uh, is my niece. Uh, I had, on my biological father's side, I had two half-brothers that I didn't know about and a half-sister. And one of the half-brothers had this daughter, and she was my niece. And uh, so a couple, uh, almost two years ago, uh, I finally sat down and wrote her a letter, and we sent her a copy of my book, and, um, and I got a, a, a great response. And, uh, and we're, we've become great friends. In fact, she's here. Oh. <laughs> Stand up. I, I, I promised all she had to do was stand up. Oh. <laughs> Sheila. Uh, she and her family live in the Bay Area, and we spent part of the weekend with them. And tonight, uh, well, today is Sheila's birthday. Oh. Happy birthday. Um, so we had a celebratory dinner tonight, and we gave her a birthday present, but she gave me an even greater present. My biological father, one of his hobbies was carving wood, and she gave me one of his wood carvings today. Oh, wow. Um, you have no idea what this means to me. This, the, you know, something tangible, something that I can touch that he touched. Uh, as my wife said at dinner tonight, I'm going to be sleeping with this tonight. <laughs> um, but yes, so uh, the update is that, yes, I did reach out to my family. One other quick thing. Mom made it to age 100. Oh. Uh, last year, she turned 100, and then a few weeks afterwards, she left us. Um, but we had the greatest birthday party ever uh, with her. We laughed. We had a wonderful time. Per her request, uh, uh, we had her cremated, uh, which meant we got uh, back the jewelry that she was wearing. And I impulsively, when it came, I put it on, and I'm wearing Mom's wedding band. Um, And I can't get it off. (laughs) Um, But uh, she wore this for 83 years. 
this for me uh, is a, who she was because you know she wore this every you know, my whole life, and to get this now and to continue it, um, I, it's so, it's so special. So I've got mom and I got dad uh, <laughs> all in one spot here. Now, Paula, you you discovered this entire new family in China just a few years ago. Uh, can you tell us what's been going on with them and you? Sure. So we started, I think, two or three businesses together. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. She's an entrepreneur. I I I I bow to your entrepreneurial spirit. No such and, thing as retirement here. And and in pursuit of um, business enterprises my uh one of my first cousins so i i started out as a child knowing no cousins and then maybe when i was around 13 i met over the next couple of years um four first cousins my father's brother and sister they lived in england and we you know in jamaica and so we didn't meet them um and now i'm one of 50 first cousins five zero so the that one child thing happened in my daughter's generation. In my generation, there's a there's lot lots of them. <laughs> so um, we, my first cousin, sent his daughter to live with us in the U.S. She was in Chicago working in one of our businesses for about six months, and then when my grandniece graduated from Vassar two years ago, we sent her to live in Shenzhen with the family there for about four months. Um, we have we agreed that we're going to send the children back and forth, which is a continuation of actually the culture in um, in Jamaica of the Chinese Jamaicans. In that, usually uh, the men who were not allowed to bring their women because of immigration restrictions, uh, they would arrive in another country, in this case Jamaica, and they'd make a new family. Right? My grandfather didn't have a new family because he was only fifteen. So whatever family he had was going to be the first one. But the tradition was that the father would send that child or those children, usually the boy or boys, um, to China, to his village to be raised by whom? The wife he left behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> wasn't always, some, for some people they had good, but it wasn't always. what. So then when they were about, they'd stay about 10 years and then come back to Jamaica and then help run the business. So philosophically, in our family, what we have done is um, my first cousins live in hmm, my first cousins live in Jamaica, Canada, the U.S., the U.K., Australia, China, Singapore, Hong Kong on occasion. So at any given point, I can open up my phone and go to the application WeChat. You know WeChat? Mm hmm. What? Right, right. WeChat is is it in China. In the rest of the world, it's like a WhatsApp, but it, but WeChat is much better than WhatsApp. <laughs> but there are 88 people on our family chat all over the world. And so I spend my time, for example, like right now in May, about 30 of my cousins are coming to the U.S. It's a cousin trip. So we'll, it'll be, you know, Jamaica. And wherever they want to go, so we roam around and and we and we rent. But how many how many how many people should I plan for? Uh, about one bus. 
<laughs> Count by buses. <laughs> that, that's truly. So, so then we're going to the World Hakka Conference in October. And then they're going to start a new business. Well, <laughs> yeah, because we look for opportunities. Make money, make money, make money. So we're going to Kuala Lumpur for the World Hakka Conference. I have cousins in Singapore, so we're going to hang out in Singapore first for a few, few days and then fly over to Kuala Lumpur and then into Guangdong Province, China. And the purpose of this really is I have a friend at Columbia University who is a PhD and he's a, he studies Hakka people and culture. Hmm. And so he's using my family as an example because we're alive and kicking and our documented um, legacy, our Japu is what it's called in Hakka. Our legacy book goes to, back to the year 1006 BC. So I'm the 151st generation of the Law clan and uh, it is written down. If you visit my family village, our ancestral village, which is in uh, present-day Shenzhen, China, it's about eight acres. The Chinese government turned it into the largest Hakka cultural museum in 1996. Our, my relatives, my cousins there, who have some money, they digitized our Japu. And so there's a computer screen in the museum, in, the, in our village. My grandfather's house has been restored and you wave your hand across the screen and the virtual page turns and it goes back to 1006 BC and everybody's in there. Are the women included now? So, yes. Going yeah, I read forward. the book. <laughs> <laughs> so, going for, so my Uncle Jawu had rewritten because I showed up and in tribute to my mother, um, he decided that women should be included. So, n- not in all Japus in China, but in our families, the women will be included. Yeah. And... Um, and uh, so uh, last year, I didn't travel to China very much because my mother-in-law was very, very ill. But the previous year, I went five times. I will probably go four or five times this year. And that's my MO. I go to China. Holy cow. <laughs> he goes to Tennessee. Uh, <laughs> frequently and often. Well, thank you so much for spending your time with us. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. One hour certainly goes by quickly. I hope you all enjoyed this evening's program, and we look forward to seeing you at more Silicon Valley Reads events in the coming weeks. We would like to thank Paula Williams-Madison, Bill Griffith, Sal Pizarro, our generous sponsors, and all of you for joining us this evening. (laughs) 